Welcome to another episode of the M121 Podcast. Today we're joined by Ben Winslet. He's the pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. Actually the oldest Baptist church in the state of Alabama. He's the founder of MarchToZion.com, which is a Primitive Baptist ministry online that has a lot of good content, articles, questions and answers, sermons, videos. I'd encourage you to check that out. And he also has his own radio show and podcast, Words of Grace, which you can find the link to that podcast and that radio show at, at March Design as well. Brother Ben, thanks for being a part of the show. Thanks for having me. It's my privilege to be here today. Well, thank you. Um, we'll jump into it. I've asked Brother Ben to come on this morning to talk about the Trinity. Um, you know, the Trinity can be, an, I guess, an overwhelming topic. That may not be the right word for it. It's a, a confusing topic. I think Paul said, great is the mystery of godliness. So it's a it's kind of a, a mystery to us, but um, it's something that certainly is uh, Orthodox Christianity holds to and something that I wanted him to talk about. So, Ben, we'll just jump into it. Uh, if you could define it for us or kind of an opening statement, what is, what is the Trinity? Well, that's a great question. It's The Trinity is a subject that, as you said, great is the mystery of godliness. There's a great sense in which the Trinity is incomprehensible. It's a mystery, and yet at the same time, the Bible speaks about it and presents it to us that our God, the true and living God, is a God that exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so to know God is to know in your heart the Trinity, to have a relationship with him, and yet at the same time here in this world, being mm-hmm. creatures of time in this in this finite world in which we live, we simply can't understand everything that there is to understand about the nature of God and the Trinity is a huge part of what we have trouble grasping. I always think about God's words in Isaiah that the heavens are infinitely above the earth and his ways are as high above our ways as the heavens are above Mm -hmm. the earth. You can peer out as far into outer space as you want to with the Hubble telescope or with anything any technology such as that, and space just continues. The heavens just continue to go. And any time that I see photos or videos of outer space, the depths of space that we've peered into, I'm just reminded that that's how far above our ways God's ways are. And certainly, that being the reality, we don't understand everything there is to know about God. But all of what we can know about the Trinity we can get from Scripture. Everything that God would have us know about himself, we can find in Scripture. He has revealed himself to us, and so that's why we believe in the Trinity. Now, as far as defining it, I'll just say up front that history is so very important in understanding how to articulate the Trinity. And the reason for that is as you would expect, some of the earliest heresies that Christianity struggled with were heresies that involved either the Trinity or the deity of Christ, whether it be Arianism or Gnosticism. The earliest attacks of Satan on the church and the gospel and the truth in the New Testament age regarded the nature of God, the identity of God, the deity of his Son. This should come as no surprise because in the Old Testament, one of the greatest struggles that the children of Israel fell into, one of the greatest sins that they fell into, was Baal worship. And so 
they worshipped Baal, they re-identified, they redefined who God was, they worshipped golden calves, they worshipped Ashtoreth. It's a problem that God's people have had in both covenants, and the Bible is emphatic and clear, and what we can know about God we get from Scripture. But history is very important as a lens to understand and define the Trinity through, and I would just say that it's hard to improve upon the definitions of the Trinity and the expressions that are used in some historic documents about the Trinity because these were born in the controversy. So there's language that you can read in the Nicene Creed or the Athanasian Creed that is very sound, it's very safe, and we can use that language to stay within the bounds of what Scripture would assert uh, about the Trinity, because those men fought those battles, and we can read their notes, and we can understand what errors there are to be avoided. So as I define the Trinity, as we define the Trinity, the Trinity, as you might gather from that word Trinity, is a triunity of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. As we think about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit, you notice I was very careful to say God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. These three are one, and yet these three are three. God the Father is not God the Son, and God the Son is not God the Holy Spirit, and yet at the same time, God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Holy Spirit is God, but there is only one God. There are not three gods. And so from eternity, God has existed as co-equal, co-eternal, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and yet these three are one Godhead, one deity. Now, speaking a little more specifically about God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, though these three are one, these three, Father, Son, and Spirit, also are revealed in Scripture to have distinct roles, for lack of a better term. Whether it be in the affairs of the Godhead, the agenda of the Godhead, of, of God Almighty, or even in our salvation, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit have been revealed in Scripture in such a way to have different respective roles. Concerning God the Father, God the Father represents... And this is a phrase that I found on one particular article about the Trinity. But God the Father represents the majesty of God. He exercises the sovereignty of God. And he maintains the prerogatives of God. So when Jesus speaks about his work in his own personal ministry, in John chapter 6, verses 37 through 39, for instance, he says that he comes to do the will of of the Father. He came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father which had sent him, and it was the Father's will which had sent him, that of all which he hath given him, he should lose nothing, but raise him up again at the last day. That's God's sovereignty and salvation, but we see clearly that Jesus, in his personal ministry, came to do the will of the Father. At the same time, as we pray to God, we pray to God the Father per the teachings of Christ. In the model prayer in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus instructs us to pray, our Father, which art in heaven. We pray to the Father. Now, as we think about the other two persons of the Trinity, we'll talk about their respective roles even in prayer as well. But as Jesus taught his disciples to pray, they are to pray to his Father, 
which is in heaven. Now, as we observe from John chapter 6, the Father also ordered the scheme of salvation. John 3.16 says that God gave his only begotten Son. That is to say, God the Father gave his Son. Isaiah 53 said that the Father bruised the Son. It pleased God to bruise his Son, God's suffering servant. And so, scriptures in the New Testament then, John 6, John 17, give us more information that Jesus Christ came to do the will of the Father, and it's the will of the Father that Christ should save all that the Father had chosen in his Son, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. And scripture gives God the Father that prerogative or that respective role that God the Father has chosen a people in his Son before the foundation of the world. And just a short note about his title there as God the Father, because a lot of people will attack the eternal sonship of Christ, and though they yeah. believe in the deity or the divinity of Christ, they'll say, well, he was the word that became the Son when he was incarnate. But that leaves God the Father without a title from eternity, which is unthinkable and nonsensical. He's called God the Father because of the dynamic that he has with his eternal Son, Christ Jesus. Jesus says to restore the glory unto him that he had before the world was, and he's praying to his Father, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy Son. And also because we are born of him at the moment of our personal salvation, when we are born of God, when we're born of the Spirit, when we're born again, according to the call of Christ himself to the soul of a dead sinner, we are born of God, and God is, in that sense, our Father. The next person that we consider in the Trinity is God the Son. And remember, it's co-equal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, co-eternal Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, none before, none after. God has existed this way for all of eternity. From everlasting to everlasting, he is God. Jesus of Nazareth is the incarnation of the Son of God, the Word of God. He is eternally the Son of the Father. And this is a very hard thing for us to grasp as human beings because all of our sons have a beginning, but not with God. He is the only begotten, but he's the only begotten from eternity. And so he has always existed, Father, Son, and Spirit. They've always existed in this dynamic of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. That's their identity as the Godhead, the three-in-one God. Again, this is hard for us to understand because every one of us that's a father became a father when we had a son, but God exists forever, eternally, in the state of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And along those lines, I just want to say that one of the phrases we can borrow from orthodoxy in history is that Christ is of the same substance as the Father. There was an early, early controversy in Christianity between the Orthodox and the Arians, and they would often debate this Greek word, and it would be pronounced in the, the modern Greek pronunciation as amasius, and seminary grads using an irrelevant, outdated, uh, unusable Erasmian pronunciation will refer to that as homoousius, but it simply means same substance. And the heretics wanted one iota, one I, to be interjected in there, homoousius or amaiousius, which means similar substance. And so 
we often say that there's not one iota of difference between a thing and another thing to say that they're the same. That comes from, that idiom or figure of speech comes from that controversy to say that there isn't one iota of difference between the substance of the Father and the Son. As Jesus said in John chapter 10, I and my Father are one, and then the Jews took up stones to stone him. And so the Son is the same substance as the Father, that is to say they're both deity, they're both divinity, they're one God. There's only one God, and this one God is made up of Father and of Son and of Holy Spirit. Concerning the work of the Son, according to several passages, John 1, Colossians 1, 16, the Father made the universe by his Son. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the same was in the beginning with God. All things that were made were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In John 1, you have Jesus, the Word, the Son, as the Creator. And you notice carefully that he's with God, he was God, and yet he was with God. If you notice, there's a Trinitarian formula in that expression. He's with God, he is God, he's with God. He's with God the Father, he is God the Son, and he's with God the Spirit. Jesus is the Creator, he's also the Savior. God gave his Son, he gave his Son, that these children of his, this world that belongs to him, would not perish but have everlasting life. The Father laid on him the iniquity of us all. He that knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Jesus and his specific role in the Trinity as it relates to salvation, whereas the Father chose, the Son redeemed. He paid the sin debt of the people of God. He's also referred to in John chapter 10 as our good shepherd. That means that Jesus provides leadership for us in our day-to-day -day lives. He's the good shepherd that gives his life for the sheep. He protects us from the wolves. He leads us. He instructs us. He teaches us. And this begins in our lives personally at the new birth when the sheep hear his voice and they follow him, as it were, from death and sin to life in Christ. Jesus, according to John chapter 14, the second person of the Godhead, Jesus, the, the Son of God, incarnate in human flesh, born of a virgin, is the only way to the Father. I am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus said in John 14. No man comes to the Father except by me. And then lastly, we pray to the Father through Christ. And so as we address our prayers, our Father which art in heaven, Jesus also taught us that anything we ask in his name, that's of course with the caveat if it's God's will, then God will hear, he'll answer, and he will give. And so we pray to the Father, and we pray in Jesus' name. Lastly, regarding the Holy Spirit, God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, from everlasting to everlasting, the three-in-one God. It's often said that the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. That's a doctrine referred to as eternal generation that, Father and Son, that dynamic has always been there within the Trinity, and that the Holy Spirit proceeds forth from the Father and from the Son. And this language you can find in the Upper Room Discourse, John 14, 15, and 16, that's biblical language. It's safe. We actually see the Holy Spirit all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created. How did he create? We know he created through his Son, Jesus. In the beginning, God, the Father, created the heaven and the earth. The earth was void and without form. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And what's the next phrase we read in Genesis 1? The Spirit of God did move upon the face of the waters. 
the Holy Spirit is not a New Testament Christian creation. The Holy Spirit makes an appearance all the way back at the creation of the world. And all through Scripture, you see men. I was reading yesterday of King Saul. The Holy Spirit came upon him, and he did prophesy. God gave him a new spirit. You, you have men who spoke through the Holy Spirit. David spoke through the Holy Spirit in the Psalms. All through the Old Testament, you have men in whom the Spirit of God is. And that's just a testimony to the fact that the Trinity is an Old Testament doctrine, just like it is a New Testament doctrine. In fact, when God creates man, man which is made in God's image, he doesn't say, let me create man in my own image. He says, let us create man in our own image, referring to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so when God speaks to God in Genesis, he uses plural terms, such as we and us, because our one God, our singular God, is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, a trinity or a triunity. Regarding the specific role of the Holy Spirit as revealed in Scripture, and I use that word, it's an imperfect term, but it's the best term that I know to use, the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit in John 3.8 is described as the active agent in the new birth. And so as we think about salvation, the Father chose, the Son redeemed, it's the Holy Spirit that quickens us, according to John 3, 8. They are born of the Spirit. The wind blows where it listeth. You hear the sound thereof. Can't not tell whence it cometh, whither it goeth. So is everyone that is born of the Spirit. So to be born again, to be vitally saved, is to be born of the Spirit. Of course, in the book of John chapter 14, the Holy Spirit is described as being our comforter, which means that as Christ has departed and gone back to be with the Father in glory, he did not leave them comfortless, but the Holy Spirit was with the early church and is with us today in the same sort of way that Christ was with the first century church. The Holy Spirit is personally with us in a special manifestation in the New Testament age. That doesn't mean that people were not born again in the Old Testament. Certainly Hebrews 11 is an honor roll of faith, faith being a fruit of the Spirit. But the Holy Spirit is with us in a very personal sense today, and as the church, as we sing, as we speak to each other in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, we're filled with the Spirit. As we worship God and seek Him and serve Him, we experience the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives and in our worship. The Holy Spirit teaches us, according to the book of 1 John, the Holy Spirit, according to Ephesians 2.18, we have access to the Father by him, and so though Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, in a vital sense, we have access to fellowship with the Father through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit assists us in prayer. As we read in Romans chapter 8, verse 26 and 27, the Holy Spirit makes intercessions for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. Now, if you notice there, I gave several different things as it relates to creation and salvation, but also our daily lives. We pray to the Father, and we pray in the Son's name, and we pray through the Spirit as the Spirit assists us in prayer. The Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father are involved in our day-to-day -day lives. God is a part of the lives of his children, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Well, that was a, that was a very uh, good answer, Ben, uh, to to what is the Trinity. And so, if you didn't know before, I think you've you've had a high level overview this morning and and gotten into some 
some details, but let's talk about scriptures. And you certainly have used many scriptures already uh, to, to focus on the Trinity and what is the Trinity and the, and the role of the Godhead within the Trinity. But um, for example, 1 John 5, 7 says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. There's, there's three roles or three, uh, three people uh, making up this Godhead, but they're all one, as you have you said. But what are some other doctrines? We, we can look at this verse, and, and certainly this verse is a, uh, doesn't come without controversy. As you know, it's been removed from many uh, translations of the Bible. But what are some other verses where we can see the Godhead in action or that we can see that, uh, that Scripture is clear that God is uh, one God, but yet in three distinct roles? Well, that's a great question. So just regarding 1 John 5, 7, the reason that that passage is removed from a lot of your more contemporary English translations is because it does not appear in a few ancient Greek manuscripts. Now, these are not the original manuscripts. In fact, two of these manuscripts that everyone seems to want to use, the Sinaiticus and the Vaticanus codices, they disagree with each other in over 3,000 places in the four Gospels alone. There are all sorts of issues with those two particular Greek manuscripts. Orthodox believers through the centuries have accepted 1 John 5-7 as Scripture. It's quoted all the way through church history. It appears in versions and lectionaries and references, and so we accept that. As received text, we receive that as the Word of God. But might I just say, and this is a point that I rarely ever hear mentioned by people who debate this subject, you do not have the word Trinity without the triunity, and you don't have the triunity without 1 John 5-7. The word Trinity assumes that 1 John 5-7 is Scripture because it is the only passage in all of the Bible that teaches that there are three and these three are one. So Trinity means tri-unity, three that are one. The only verse in the Bible that teaches that there are three that are one is 1 John 5, 7. Now, why do you think it would be attacked? Well, because that was one of the earliest attacks upon the gospel and the word of God. So we accept 1 John 5, 7. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. But there are other verses, just to name a couple from the book of Matthew, when Jesus is baptized— as he went straightway out of the water, which means that he wasn't sprinkled, he was baptized, he was immersed, the heavens were opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting upon him, and lo, a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. You have an appearance of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the same place, at the same time, at the baptism of Christ, the Holy Spirit in the form of a dove, and the voice of the Father thundering through creation, announcing his pleasure and satisfaction in his son. And then related to that in Matthew chapter 28, as we baptize people, we baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost in Matthew 28, 19. Both of those passages teach the Trinity as well. Well, that so there's, 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 there's a multitude of scriptures, and the fact that we would baptize mm-hmm. in the name of the Trinity uh, would just— just show, you know, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, that that, that was very important to God, right? Well, what are, what are some common misconceptions or ideas about the Trinity, the Godhead? I know you, you said that was 
one of the first attacks that Satan had against the church was on the deity of Christ or the, or the Trinity itself. But what are some misconceptions today that maybe still linger from that or, or newer things that have, that have arisen that are, that are misconceptions about the Trinity? That's a great question. So obviously the first attacks against the Trinity in the New Testament age would have been the attacks against the mm-hmm. person of Christ. And so as your Pharisees, your Sadducees, men such as Herod or Pontius Pilate, any sort of men such as that, as they condemn and reject Christ, that's an attack upon the Trinity. Because to attack his deity, his divinity, his identity as the Christ, the Messiah, that's to attack the Trinity. But as far as errors in the church, the earliest of those is probably Gnosticism which is believed to have been founded actually by Simon Magus, the Simon the Sorcerer in the book of Acts chapter 8, who was a heretic and excommunicated and went on to claim to be divine himself and persecute the church. But it's believed that he founded Gnosticism. Gnosticism taught that Christ was a lesser deity. I believe the, the actual term might be demiurge, but it's been, it's been years since I've, I've read about early Gnosticism. But they denied the deity of Christ. They taught he was a lesser deity, and everything physical is evil, everything spiritual is good. And through enlightenment, some sort of intellectual enlightenment, we can transcend from this physical plane to some sort of, I guess, heavenly plane with his greater deity. And that was was a terrible, terrible heresy. After that, you had Arianism, which taught that Jesus was created, that he was not divine, and Along with Arianism, there were other heresies, such as this concept that Jesus could have sinned, that he was made subject to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, etc., when Jesus was perfect and he was holy. There was no sin in him. Though he were solicited by Satan with sin, he never lusted. He never considered it because he's God incarnate, and God cannot be tempted with sin. It was impossible. It was impossible. And those are pretty damning heresies. Those are serious problems, and any group that subscribes to those ideas today, we have nothing to do with, and we do not bid them Godspeed. A good old Southern Baptist that disagrees with me on salvation but loves Jesus and knows that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he and I can sit around a campfire and enjoy talking about what the Lord's done in our lives, but when it comes to a Christ denier or your, your Jehovah's Witnesses, your Arians, your Mormons, there's no fellowship that we can have with someone like that because they deny the truth of who God is. They don't worship the same God. Now, there are light versions of that that even Christians, well-meaning Christians, fall victim to. One of those is partialism, and I'm sure we've all seen the uh, the funny little YouTube channel with the two Irish guys, and it's got St. Patrick, and he says something about the Trinity that's unorthodox, and these two little guys say, that's heresy, Patrick. Well, there's a lot of things that modern Christians say when they try to explain the Trinity that would result in those two guys saying, that's heresy, Patrick. One of them is partialism, that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit all make up one-third of God. And so the Father's partially God, the Son's partially God, the Spirit's partially God, and it takes all three to make God, but that's heresy. God the Father is God, God the Son is God, God the Spirit is God. They don't make up thirds of the true and living God. They are God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Sometimes you'll hear it said that, well, this 
this Trinity is like maybe all-in-one shampoo, conditioner, body wash. But you know, there there are three ingredients that make up one product. But but that's partialism because you can separate from the shampoo, the body wash, and the conditioner. You cannot separate Father, Son, and Spirit. You you cannot separate God into smaller parts. That's a doctrine called the simplicity of God. God cannot be broken up into smaller elements. Now, now you might think, well, you just contradicted yourself because you said there were three that were one. Uh, again, I go back to the fact that the Trinity is a mystery that's incomprehensible, and all of these different things we've said about the Trinity are true at the same time. We simply can't understand how these things work and these things function. Would, so that, we don't go back, speak, would that go back to being of the same substance? I mean, in your example with would, the shampoo and the would. conditioner, and, and they're not of the same substance, they're of a different absolutely. substance. But, a- absolutely. But in the Godhead, they're, they're all made up of the divine, right? Exactly. And so uh, maybe the flip side of that, the error on the other side would be what we call modalism. The root of that is the word mode. They would say that God reveals himself at different times in different modes, but never the same mode at the same time. And so they would say that God the Father became God the Son at incarnation, and God the Son then turns into God the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost, and and so it's never Father, Son, and Spirit, it's Father, Son, or Spirit, and that's also heresy, and some earlier versions of that would be Sibelianism, but sometimes you hear people explain it that way today. Here's how they do it, not realizing it. They'll say the same man can be, at the same time, a son, a father, and a grandfather. If you have four generations alive, then you have a son, a father, and a grandfather. My son is married and has a stepdaughter, and so I'm a grandfather. He has his first child born, about to be born in just a couple of weeks, the Lord willing, and that would make me a son, a father, and a grandfather. But the problem with that is that it does not deal accurately with the concept of the Trinity. God is Father, Son, and Spirit eternally. You saw that in the baptism of Christ. The Holy Spirit, the Father, and the Son are all there manifest at the same time, teaching us that it's not that God is one God that either appears in the mode of the Father or the Son or the Spirit, but that God exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. While I might have different roles of a father, a son, and a grandfather. I'm not three different persons, father, son, and grandfather. And so that that metaphor, that analogy is bad. It's rotten. We don't need to use it. It does not sufficiently describe the Trinity. We can be no more clear and we can be no more deep than what the Word of God reveals to us about the Trinity. And any time we leave what the Word of God says, we're on dangerous ground. We need to back up and go back to the safety of what Scripture says. Yeah, I agree 100%. I'm reminded of a conversation that, that you and I had and uh, with your brother Josh uh, you know, several years ago, and it really convinced me that there's, there is, there's just no way. Mm-hmm. When we try, it's kind of like quicksand. When we try to begin to describe the Trinity using um, examples or metaphors or or things that would relate to, to nature or whatever it may be, whether it's uh, you know the example of an apple or water or the the relationship of you know you're a father you're a you're a husband and you're also a, a employee or whatever it may be they all it's like quicksand you start to bury you get deeper and deeper and deeper and away from Scripture so it's better just to uh, just to understand that the Trinity is a matter of faith right. 
Um, right. We and and we understand it by faith. Um, what? Let me ask you this. So, a lot of people could be here in this conversation and think, "Why does all this matter?" How would you answer that question? The the answer is very short, and it, it'll be the shortest answer of the questions that we've answered so far, of the things that we've said thus far. You want to get God right, because to do otherwise is tantamount to idolatry. To worship God in a way, in a form that does not accurately represent him is to invent unto ourselves an idol. And I don't think anyone who knows and loves Lord Jesus wants to be guilty of idolatry. And yet that's what happens when we invent God anew in another form. We might as well be making a golden calf. We want to get this right because to do otherwise would be guilty of idolatry. Spirit and truth, right? Amen. Yeah, I heard, I think it was C.S. Lewis that said, God created man in his image and man has returned the favor uh, by creating <laughs> God in, in, in the image of man. So that is, I think that's the best thing you can, you can, you can say is that why does it matter? Is well, it matter to God, and it, and it matters to us as we try to worship God uh, in in the New Testament uh, church. Ben, any any final thoughts on on the Trinity that you want to share with us today? No, sir. In, in the words of the great philosopher Forrest Gump, that's all I have to say <laughs> about that. <laughs> well, I've certainly enjoyed it. I mean, we could you could spend. Hours and hours and hours, and certainly there's been books and books written about the Trinity, and 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 many many more things could be said. But this is a podcast; it's not uh, all exhaustive. Um, but I'm sure if you if you have more questions, you can you can go to MarchDesign.com, and they have a contact us button, and you can ask. That's right, and we have plenty of plenty of things in the library that speak to that subject as well, in addition to podcasts and other forms of media. When you go to the bookstore, if you buy the questions and answers from parents to children, the first several questions have to do with the Trinity and with God in simple question and answer form. So there are many resources that are available, and we would just invite you to make use of those. Yeah, and I would if you're listening today, and, and we've mentioned March Design a few times, but um, you know, take advantage of those things. There are so many good, sound uh, websites and resources that that are available, and I would encourage people to take advantage of them and and share them with your friends. Share them on social media. If you if you read something and you enjoy it, uh, share it. You don't know who it's going to touch. Uh, you don't know who's going to come in contact with that, and they may uh, they may see Jesus in a way they've never seen him before. They may understand uh, the Trinity if it's the Trinity or salvation or whatever. You don't know. What kind of what kind of fire you might spark by just sharing content online? It's a it's a really easy way. I hate to even call it evangelism because it really costs nothing, uh, but it's an easy way to evangelize uh, your friends and families and those who 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 may see what you share online. Uh, ben, thank you so much. I hope you'll come back and, and do some more with us. Uh, y'all check out MarchDesign.com. And until next time, God bless.